Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. The seamless garment. That's what we're going to be talking about today on this episode of Rules for Retrogrades Live. Why does the seamless garment keep popping back into the, the, the popular Catholic parlance on the left and left of center, if you call that Catholic? Even though it's been batted down any number of times, and even though in our Catholic first principles there's an inherent contradiction that doesn't allow seamless garment to get off the ground in the first place. Well, I'll explain why it's so endemic. Part of understanding what this heresy, fallacy is, is to understand why the diabolic left, outside Catholicism, yeah, but mainly inside the ranks of what we would have to consider nominal Catholicism, are so obsessed with it. Why is Pope Francis, in some ways, the embodiment of it? This is not a Francis show, but we're going to talk about some of the themes that connect the seamless garment and Pope Francis today. It's been called the death of the pro-life movement on EWTN's pages in the last 20 years, and I think this is an apropos way of stating it. We're going to get into all this today, and it's going to be an amazing show because it's popping back up. I'm going to read you a James Martin tweet that perfectly intones what the seamless garment is. It's not about veritable life issue like abortion. It's not about a veritable life issue like euthanasia. These are the two beginning of life, end of life issues where people are being killed. Seamless garment involves itself with everything that happens during life. Characterizing convenient tropes and causes celeb of the left as violations of quote-unquote life issues because they happen to a living body. Closed borders. You know, I'm a big advocate of closing the borders. They say this is a life issue because it damages the interest of someone who is alive who would like to come here legally or illegally. I want closed borders. That's not a life issue. We'll talk about the hard formal distinctions between these two. First, though, if I could speak to you heart to heart for half a moment. Sarah Grant, the wife of Ryan Grant, who's a well-known traditional Catholic interpreter, uh, Latinist, and personality who appears on multiple channels, greatly needs your help. And this means that the entire Grant family needs your help. She is bed-stricken, very, very ill. She was given six months to live a couple months ago. And it looks like failing a miracle, she could be, I'm speaking very carefully now, she could be at the end or very near the end. And uh, Ryan is about my age. His wife, Sarah, is about Steph's age. They just celebrated their 18th wedding anniversary. Steph and I celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary in a few months. So it hits close to home in lots of ways. Esophageal cancer is what she was initially stricken with and it spread. Please support Ryan Grant and Sarah Grant and their family on Give, Send, Go. Anytime folks need financial support, and this might be, this might, heaven forbid that Sarah ends up passing away, this might be more for Ryan and the nine 
children that he and Sarah had together, they feel, I've been through this, they feel subconscious asking for more than a paltry sum of money. So they've already met what they're going for. Please give, let's, let's double that. Let's triple that amount. And remember, this is like tithing. Some people say it's like tithing. Some people say it counts. I'm not sure. This is a member of the church. I think it counts. I haven't looked into it that detailedly, though. It's the best use of your money is help supporting fellow Catholics who are in need. This is what subsidiarity is all about. We don't want the government. We don't want the blood money from the government helping these people. We Christian Catholic brethren of the grants want to help them. So please, go, give to their gifts and go, which is support Sarah Grant and family. They need your money. I, I won't be abashed about saying it. They're going to need money even if a, a miracle intervenes and Sarah can beat this thing even though she's considered terminal. Ryan and his nine kids are going to need some money if it's just them going it alone. Heaven, heaven forbid. God bless these people. They've been through the ringer. Couldn't be a more apt source for your charity. They, they've had a rough three or four years. They had a death in the family of one of the children. And uh, please, 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 I, I try not to do too many of these, but there's so much need in the world now. Stop giving to your typical Clown Mass Novus Ordo Parish. Give it instead to Ryan, okay? The Give, Send, Go is support Sarah Grant and family. Support Sarah Grant and family. They've already reached the nominal amount, please. Let's triple, quadruple, quintuple that. Also, they need prayers. And they, together with Father Longenecker, is it, have uh, requested a prayer to obtain blessings involving Father Aloysius Elacuria, uh, Claritian missionary, son of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and it goes like this. Please pray with me now. They need your prayers as well as your financial support. Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we beseech thee to look upon the life of your servant, Father Aloysius, and grant your blessings upon those who reverence him through imitation and prayer. May his love and devotion to our Lord Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary be the source of intercession for the favor that we ask in regard to Sarah Grant and her family, please heal Sarah Grant miraculously. By the example of Father Aloysius, may we sanctify our own lives and render honor and glory to the Almighty God. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. can use your prayers and financial support. One final note on this. Ryan's requested, please stop sending him by Twitter or social media alternative medicine tips. I can speak from having had a neurosurgery patient child, ha having one still, four or five brain surgeries, and please don't send tips but, you know, this is like trying to make the, the call in a basketball game when you're not the line judge. You're across the court and you're, you're saying, oh, do this. And you're getting in the way of all the people that are in the place to make the call. I know a lot of it's well intended, but we have had fights with family and friends 
over this back in back in our dark days or we are living in and out of children's hospitals. Please, it becomes harrowing fast. Um, they're handling it. Just trust them to handle what they can handle. This is subsidiarity, the Catholic principle of culture and politics. Let them handle what they can handle. You know, the, the medical aspect of this, getting through the hospital day by day when you have to split up a family of 11 people. And let's, for them, handle what they can't handle. They can't all pray 100,000 strong. I'm sure they pray in their family every night and every day. We can pray for them 100,000 strong, 200, 300, 400,000 strong. And they can't give themselves a million dollars. Let's give to the family a million dollars. Money doesn't solve everything, but it is contributory towards lessening the sum total, the cumulative amount of stress in someone's mind. When I had a little brain surgery patient and I'd come from Italy, I came, I came here with a couple, couple hundred dollars in my pocket, left behind a PhD in Italy, decided to go to law school, was very impoverished, through law school for three or four years. And then in my third year of law school, Abby had to have yet another brain surgery. When people gave a little bit of money or a lot, it actually does help your sum total of stress in other areas. People that have been tough time, through tough times know this. I was struggling with hanging on by thread to my mental and spiritual sanity. And when someone would give money, it gave so much. One time I was given a $50 Walmart gift card while I was waiting for law student tuition to come through in another week. And that enabled me and my small family, Steph and Ab, to not have to eat ramen noodle a couple times in that week when we waited for the money to come through. So it don't 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 buy into the lie. Money itself is not at the root of all evil. It actually can be a conditional good when you use it the way that we're talking about here today. I'm not trying to preach. Just I, my heart goes out to these people. I have the link for their Give, Send, Go in chat right now at the top, and I will put it in the, um, the comments as well. Um, Sarah just had a baby. I think their baby's only a few months old, so this is just, they really could, could use your prayers. It's a worst case scenario. Okay, now, it's, it's strangely apropos. These good, goodly pro-life people that have been through the thick and the thin of it and are in the thin of it right now, they know what life issues are, the grants. And yet, folks like Cardinal, Cardinal Bernadine, Satanist homo-predator, Satanist homo-predator from Chicago and, and Dallas before that. He's sort of the antithetical character the, the bad, one of the bad guys, the American bad guy in Windswept House. He is the one that applied an older concept of the seamless garment first to the pro-life issue. Does this make sense? Let me read from a few of his disciples in, in, um, implicitly or explicitly. This is pro-abortion Catholic priest Daniel McGuire. He said, honest debate is the only way to get this abortion bone out of the Catholic throat so that we can get on to more important pro-life issues. Uh, and, and he means such things as hunger, health care, overpopulation, militarism. This is in a hard bracket in this quote on this EWTN article. So I'm not sure if he, McGuire, 
Father McGuire had said this in another place, hunger, healthcare, overpopulation, militarism, whether he enumerated that or if the author of the article is enumerating it, hard brackets are ambiguous. Hard back brackets can be very problematic in uh, direct quotes uh, and very vague. But that's, um, that's one interesting piece. The article that I'm reading from and I'll be reading from is called The Seamless Garment, Death for the Pro-Life Movement. It's a great history on the story of the seamless garment fallacy, heresy, that shall not go away. Here's another, here's another awful, awful quote. People who call themselves pro-life are phonies because they don't care about the rights of gays and minorities. They are for the death penalty and they couldn't care less about nuclear weapons, war, the environment, and animal rights. That's another one. I don't, I don't know who that's from. Rights. Animal rights. Okay, the seamless garment, death for the pro-life movement. I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs of this because it's, it's a nice peek into the storied history of this satanic doctrine of seamless garment. Seamless garment, for those who don't know, is that it's all one pro-life garment, all of the Catholic social teachings, not just issues of abortion, beginning of life issues, when, a, when an innocent is killed, or euthanasia, an end of life issue, when an innocent is killed, murdered. But all issues, like hunger, healthcare, overpopulation, militarism, refugeeism, okay? Although the seamless garment theory has been in existence since social activism began, I don't really know how far back that goes. It was first applied to pro-lifers in 1976 by Joseph Cardinal Bernardin in Dallas before he was in, was this before he went to Chicago? Uh, by about a uh, half a decade. The Cardinal did not provide useful details on his permutation of the theory until a few years later, 1984, in a St. Louis talk by him entitled, A Consistent Ethic of Life, Continuing the Dialogue. In this speech, Bernadine stated that although abortion and nuclear war cannot be collapsed into one problem, abortion, nuclear war, but they must nevertheless be confronted as pieces of a larger pattern. One some says yes, in some sense no, say, say I. Pro-abortion and other neoliberal groups, of course, couldn't be happier with Cardinal Bernadine's seamless garment argument because with it, they could cloak themselves with a shroud of legitimacy and righteousness. It's the end of this sentence, but they could cloak themselves with a shroud, I would add, and simultaneously bring certain issues that are not Catholic moral theology, do not qualify under the penumbra of Catholic moral theology. They can bring it up, like so-called what I call Skittles rights. That's not, that's not even a, a minor moral issue. Actually, that is a moral issue in the opposite direction. We must not acknowledge the, the so-called right to marry in, for Skittles groups. They have a right to life, liberty, property. But they do not have, this, this is not life, liberty, property of Skittles people, LMNOP people, are not what is designated by this term. Skittles rights. They mean the right to marry. And we, as a, as a Catholic moral theological matter, 
There is an imperative. It goes the other way. We must not recognize this right. Do you understand? You understand how, how this works? They're bringing certain rights or certain non-rights into existence as rights. And they're bringing certain real imperatives that are, as, as uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger said, as prefect of the CDF in 2004, he said certain rights are beyond dispute as life issues, right to life, meaning abortion, euthanasia. War in the death penalty, in the same quote, Ratzinger said, can be disagreed about by legitimate Catholics in good standing. They are not life issues, in other words. So it takes issues like abortion and euthanasia, which are imperatives, absolute murder of absolute innocence in the case of abortion. This is close to absolutely innocent as a human being can get, aside from the stain of original sin. And, and innocents who are at the end of their life. That is inarguable. Ratzinger referred as prefect for the CDF, and these other issues that the Satanists in the church, like Bernadin, Bernadin's disciples, really more truly care about. The ones that say things like uh, pro-life people are phonies because they care about life issues and they don't care about these non-life issues that such people are characterizing as life issues. Uh, Daniel McGuire, pro-abortion Catholic priest, says we got to get abortion out of the way so we can get onto these more important pro-life issues, like presumably Skittles marriage, presumably uh, communist health care, presumably overpopulation, which really, whenever someone's citing overpopulation, you know where they're at truly on the abortion issue. They're for it. The article continues, anti-life groups like Catholics for a free choice see the seamless garment as a hell-sent handy way, except they want it, they want it, and it's a handy way of putting abortion at the bottom of everyone's priority list, and even hopefully of burying the thorny and messy issue altogether. After all, if we relegate abortion to the back burner, nobody will attempt to violate the privacy of the baby killers. This is not the original intent of the Cardinal's concept, of course. But how many times have veteran pro-life activists heard that you're not really pro-life unless you... Here's the number one faulty, spurious counter-argument. Unless you oppose capital punishment, you can't be pro-life. We're going to talk about this at some length in a minute. Unless you work to stop nuclear war. Unless you work to stop hunger. Unless you work to increase human dignity unless you work to increase access to contraception, which is, means you're anti-life, unless you work to safeguard Skittles' rights, unless you help to save whales, unless you adopt several Ethiopian children. They love that one, right? Adopt several children from a third world country. Or you're not pro-life, they say. Unless you are a strict vegetarian and wear no leather. It's not a life issue. Unless you do a thousand other things besides opposing abortion. So you've heard all this. Seamless garment is implemented most voraciously in the context of opposing the death penalty. And Francis has, has really 
Francis, in conjunction with the John Paul II pontificate, has been as close to materially heretical as you can get about the death penalty. Steph is reading through the Old Testament right now for Lent, and the death penalty appears so many more times than even the blessed mind of Dr. Edward Fazer recounted in By Man Shall His Blood Be Shed and, and, and Joseph Bissett. I know both these guys, good men. But there's like 10 times more Old Testament reaffirmation of the death penalty than they're able to recount. It's like every other paragraph in the Old Testament. Death penalty is good. It's a big part of Christianity. It's very good. Not just to protect other people, right? That would be consequentialism. This is the moral error of John Paul II in the 1997 revision to the catechism. That's actually a formal logical fallacy to say that the death penalty is justified because it protects people. It's, it's not. It's justified because it's right. You don't get to protect people in non-exigent circumstances by killing other people unless it was right to kill the other people first. It's not the principle of double effect. I should do a show on this, but the principle of double effect does not apply when the death penalty is being used to protect innocent life. Principle of double effect requires a principle called, a, a subsidiary principle called uh, exigency, clear and present danger. Okay? You don't get to use the death penalty to neutralize a threat that's not currently operative. That's why I can defend my home with lethal force. That's not why the state can kill a guilty accused murderer. The state can kill a guilty accused murderer because it's inherently just. It's inherently just, according to natural law and according to the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's the seamless garment. And trust me, it's applied most often to the death penalty, but it's also applied very, very frequently in this other context of someone saying, well, it's not necessarily that you're a hypocrite in the sense that they are in the former sense, right? If you like the death penalty. But you don't really, you're not a hypocrite, but you don't believe what you're saying about being pro-life, about saving innocent babies, unless you personally go and adopt all or some of those babies who would otherwise be aborted. How many third world country babies do you have in your home? How many Ethiopian children have you adopted? That's not the point. That's like saying, I'm very anti-first degree adult-on-adult murder. Would you say that I'm not anti-first degree adult-on-adult murder because I'm not Batman? And I don't go around saving individuals in Gotham City by acts of benevolent vigilantism or something? You are Batman. You are Batman. I am Batman. Thank you. I've been waiting for someone to acknowledge that. And lo and behold, it's only my wife who does so. Do you, no one would think of that because it's absurd. I'm not a hypocrite and I'm not lackluster in my belief, my fervid belief against violence against innocence. I'm not. Just because I don't go out and act as a caped Avenger in Gotham City. It's absurd. I can believe what I believe, and as long as I don't expressly contradict it, I don't go murder another adult. 
then I can have my belief, even without being Batman, without contradiction. I can have my belief, it's obvious, about murdering preborn babies without adopting a single kid in my life. And most folks who call themselves pro-life will never adopt. God bless you if you adopt. We've considered it, but it has nothing to do with whether or not I'm pro-life. I am pro-life. And Batman. And Batman. I'm pro-life Batman. I'm just being factual here. That's who I am. Um, so listen to this. You know, neoliberal clergy, I was on this sentence, wove a seamless web from the consistent ethic of life. This is another name for the seamless garment, a consistent ethic of life. If you really believe in life, you'll help everyone all the time, which is, of course, an impossible standard. I'm, try I'm trying to help Ryan Grant and family right now. And it's like, I can only do so much, so can you. No one can give like all their money to Ryan Grant and family. I, I, I sort of wish I could. This story melts my heart. But you can only give, you know, whatever you can give. 10, 50, 100. Some of you who are really blessed can give a thousand bucks. Do so. But the consistent ethic of life people, the seamless garment people, would say, unless you give all your money, you don't really believe in this cause. And that's, that's fallacious. It's irrational. That's girlish thought. Um, and, and so this consistent ethic of life is hardwired to lead to, to generate a number of flagrant abuses, the article says. For example, Cardinal Bernadine himself attended several banquets to benefit Planned Parenthood contributors and then criticized Cardinal John O'Connor as uh, having tepid pro-life efforts or inconsistent pro-life efforts because of the seamless garment. Cardinal Bernadine, a Satanist homo-predator, accused and strongly evidenced homo-predator, I should say, attends Planned Parenthood contributor fundraisers or whatever, but then, on the basis of the seamless garment, he criticizes pro-life John O'Connor's pro-life efforts as inconsistent just because I don't know what the specific charge was. John O'Connor might support the death penalty, as I hope he does, as I hope all of you do. The death penalty is great justice in our penal system. So you see how that enables the Satanists, Catholic leftists are, are really satanic, to walk between the raindrops. They can be openly pro-abortion, which is what most of them are, I don't know why you'd call yourself a leftist unless you're pro-abortion. It's their main issue, their main sacrament. While at the same time, they have the gall to call truly pro-life people not pro-life just because they don't select your issue. And then, remember, this is what the left is all about. They call you phobic if you don't like something. Do you like licorice? I, I like black licorice. I've got the heart of like an old lady, right? What'd you say? Oh, I thought you said oh, poop. Boy. I was like, it's, it's... I also said that. Poop. Because that's gross. Um, I like black licorice. <laughs> if you don't like it, if you like, like, confused Steph here, don't like black <laughs> licorice. If I were a leftist, I would cope with this by calling you a licorice phobe. You say, I'm, I'm not afraid of it. Bring it on. I'll tear it up. I'll, I'll burn it. I'm not afraid of it. I just dislike it. That's what we say 
to the left, but most people aren't quite as daring, I've noticed. Most conservatives aren't quite as daring. I said, I'm not afraid. Say I'm phobic of one thing. I'm not afraid of those people. I mean, there's lots of stuff they accuse you of being phobic about. But I'm just saying the left has this pattern where they're really good at psychology. I don't, I don't like this sin. I hate it. You call me a phobe. And that means like I'm trying to hide something. That means I'm a coward. And th so then I want to be like, no, no, I, okay, I love this sin. That's how they have conservatives kowtow. That's how they, they get you to toe the line, to fall in line. It, it shouldn't work. If you don't like something, it doesn't mean you're afraid of it. S some subset of things I don't like, I'm afraid of, but it's a small one. Okay, so watch this technique. They call you inconsistent or they call you a fear, a fearer of a thing just because you don't like it. These charges were naturally leveled while O'Connor was out of the country and was therefore unable to reply by Bernadine. Bernadine was also, also fired a good priest from the Chicago Diocesan Pro-Life Office for offering mass in reparation for the widespread use of artificial contraception by American Catholics, saying that this mass was too narrow and negatively focused. So he fired a guy who was in charge of the pro-life office of, in Chicago for doing a pro-life thing. Welcome to the 20th and 21st century. Up is down, black is white, evil is good, good is evil. Okay? It's got to be end times. Of course, masses said for the intention of getting relief from the oppression of the Contras, or, uh, you know, this is in Nicaragua, I think this article is like 25 years old, or for Skittles people were perfectly acceptable to Bernadette. Well, this, this is what he cares about. It's near to his heart. Another outstanding example, this EWTN article says, of how the seamless garment theory can be twisted to favor anti-life forces is a full-page advertisement that appeared in a 1988 edition of a left-wing Catholic newspaper called The Progress. Luckily, this one seems to have been vituperated between then and now. The purpose of this ad was to drum up support for the second most anti-life presidential campaign this country at that point had ever seen, that of Michael Dukakis. Remember him in 88? Uh, the headline in one-inch high letters shouted, George Bush is pro-life? Question mark. Actions speak louder than rhetoric. The ad proceeds... Now, George Bush, I don't think any of the Bushes are veritably pro-life by our standards. Uh, what an evil family, right? But in 1988, when I was seven years old, over 30 years ago, people still thought the Bushes were pro-life. The ad proceeded to describe all the perceived economic woes of the country. There's poverty or something. Placing them, along with the Iran-Contra affair, at Bush's feet. The complaints included the plight of farm families, bank failures, infant mortality, wealth concentration, the minimum wage, and all of the issues near and dear to a neoliberal's cold heart. This guy's got some style here. Moxie in his writing. Abortion was not mentioned until the concluding pitch and only then in a condescending manner. In a trivializing way, I think he means. Notice how the pro-aborts, once again, used the tools of confusion and deception as they tried to lay claim to the title pro-life. 
It's quite audacious, and only leftists are this bold. I mean, God bless them. We need to use some of the tools in their repertoire, if I can mix metaphors like a Cuisinart. George Bush wants you to believe he is pro-life. He may be anti-abortion, but his policies are far from pro-life. Vote for Dukakis and Benson, paid for by Catholics committed to responsible pro-life leadership. John Paul II got to the heart of the matter when he said in 1986 that an extreme sensitivity akin to a holy reaction is felt when attempts on life are made in the form of famine, war, and terrorism. Yet one cannot find this feeling of sensitivity when faced with abortion, which takes the lives of innumerable innocent beings. JP2, we criticize him lots on this show, but he was very, very anti-abortion. Okay, then, then this article, it's a long article. It has a section on nuclear war. It's a bit 80s-ish. I'm going to skip it. We're skipping to the death penalty, which 30-some-odd years later, 35 years later, are, we know the death penalty issue is the main implementation of the seamless garment. Let's get rid of the death penalty. Getting rid of the death penalty is, to a leftist Catholic, far more important than getting rid of abortion. Seamless garment enthusiasts state flatly that one cannot be truly pro-life if he is not both pro anti-abortion and anti-death penalty. And um, arguably, I, I don't think most of the people that say this, if you push anecdotally, this is how it's been in my experience, are not even anti-death penalty. They're, anti, uh, they're anti-death penalty, I'm sorry, but not anti-abortion. This is worse than a comparison of apples and oranges. It is literally a comparison of grapes and watermelons. This, I don't know what this line means. Uh, I guess they're different sizes. Once again, seamless shroud supporters, seamless garment supporters, ignore the central points of the comparison. The preborn baby has committed no harm against anyone, while those who receive the death penalty have been found guilty of the most heinous crimes in most cases, and many heinous crimes. The criminal has been tried by a jury in front of a judge, and both sides have presented evidence adversarially. Good point. The preborn has no jury, no judge, not even a charge. Execution of a killer is a matter of utmost seriousness. It is true that some innocent people may have been executed. Who cares? There's no one culpable for this if they went to trial. I, I mean, not who cares in the sense that it's not a tragedy, but people die by getting hit by buses every day in major cities in the world. People fall down flights of stairs. I'm not saying who cares. Hopefully, all of these people that were hit by a bus trip down a flight of stairs and die or were executed innocently. There's more in the previous two categories than in the third, by the way. I hope all of them were in good standing with the Lord and went to heaven and have a blessed life with, with God. They're, they're happier, if so, than I am right now, and I'm a pretty happy dude. Okay? Accidents happen. No one is accountable for an accident. As explained on the most recent CMASK, an accident is without a formal or a final cause. No one intended it, and, the, and, and the, the act has no intelligibility. You don't have to worry about it. If you accidentally kill someone, and you're not negligent or reckless at law you don't have to worry about it on your conscience that doesn't mean you don't wish that you didn't do it of course you're not a murderer you don't have to worry about it soteriologically okay 
So you don't have to worry about the extremely small amount of folks that have been put to death who are innocent. It is true that some innocent people may have been executed, but it is also true that the system has expended great efforts in discerning his guilt. This is the real point. If there's some horrible coincidence and he gets falsely uh, not only indicted, but found guilty, then he will be rewarded in heaven, assuming he's in good standing. Uh, and, And he had time. It's not like he died instantly. This is the real point. Whether you're put to death innocent or like 99.9% of them put to get death guilty, you have time to go through last rites, to make a confession, and to go to heaven. And this is why Thomas Aquinas says the death penalty is a blessing not to defend innocent life. The death penalty is a blessing for the guilty. I've been through the numbers on this, my friends, and about a third of all folks who ever go to death row, a little under, who go to death row, make some imperfect act of contrition or some imperfect act of sorrow, which might get them into heaven because they have a red letter date. It is a great act of mercy to put a, a murderer to death. He sees that date, you go to the chair in three days, and almost a third of them fully will make some act of repentance. Maybe not a sacramental act, but whatever. They're not all Catholics. Compare this, contrast it rather, to the amount of murderers who go to death, uh, go to prison for life. Almost none of them make an act of repentance. Do you understand what this means? The former, the death penalty, is consistent with human dignity from the perspective of the guilty. The latter life imprisonment, rejection of the death penalty, in other words, is inconsistent with the human dignity of the guilty accused. Can we let that sink in? The death penalty alone is consistent with human dignity. Rejecting the death penalty is a rejection of human dignity. I'm not just talking from a juridical point of view. Obviously, it's more just. You take a life, we take yours. That's dignitarian from the perspective of the victim. But from the perspective of the guilty accused, it's more consistent with dignity to put them to death. More of them end up going to heaven or purgatory. When, and this is why ultimately it's evil to be anti-death penalty, which is why the left has it. They have all the wrong positions. Do you understand? More guilty accused that are not given the death penalty will go to hell than among that population of guilty accused murderers who are put to death. It's a simple fact. I've seen the statistics. Vastly more. It's dignitarian to the victim and to the aggressor. Could you please at one point um, just uh, state here the point that you make about how Christ actually, I guess, not blesses, but he accepts the death penalty when he was talking to Pilate? Yeah, in John's God, I mean, I don't even like going through the scriptural examples because the whole Old Testament is probably a thousand, if not 
six, seven, eight hundred affirmations that God loves the death penalty. God implements the death penalty. God urges us to use the death penalty. St. Paul reaffirms this dozens of times, or at least a dozen times in the New Testament. And Jesus, directly in John's gospel, says, tells to Pilate, the power that you have over me to put me to death comes to you only through heaven. It comes to you from heaven because you're a leader. It has to do with our model of leadership. You hold this power, it's true. Jesus is emphasizing, but it's only because it comes from heaven. But he does, as a matter of fact, affirm that Pilate holds the power to put him to death. And we know that it's not just a positive law that's inconsistent with natural law because Jesus says that power flows to you from heaven. This is inarguable. And it's also inarguable on those empirical grounds I just stated. More guilty accused will go to heaven if they're put to death by great numbers than the amount of guilty accused that will go to heaven if they're not put to death. It's a fact. Vastly more. People, stop talking about the preventive power, the innocent life-saving power of the death penalty. Stop. JP2 put us on this spurious track and Francis furthered it. And then you're like, well, um, you, you know, if you're in a prison system that, that can save the lives of law-abiding people, they won't be killed by the murder, then there's no more purpose for the death penalty. It's wrong. It's wrong because the death penalty is mainly justified not for saving innocent life, but for the dignity of the guilty accused and for the invisible juridical justice principle. You take a life, we take yours. Both are from heaven. The dignity of the accused and the dignity of the innocent who was killed. That's an invisible principle. It's not a practical principle. Now, as a practical principle, you could, I, I, I challenge John Paul II and Francis in this way if they're sitting in front of me. You can have the tightest prison wall system. You can seal them in there and lock them up and throw away the key. It can be the most hermetically sealed castle in all of Britain. And you can throw away the key. And guess what? Guess what happens in prisons? Guess what murderers do to each other in prisons? Some things I can't even speak here because this is a family show. They do that to each other. They rape each other. And they also kill each other at very startling numbers. So are you telling me, Pope Francis, that if A goes to prison and is rotting away there, and B goes to prison and is rotting away there, and neither of them ever escape, and they're both on life sentences, which Francis opposes, by the way. He opposes life sentences, too. Um, you're saying that B doesn't have dignity? No, of course he does. You're saying that A doesn't have dignity? No, of course he does. But at very great rates, A and B try to kill each other and often succeed. Whether it's A or B who kills the other one, they're each murderers, they're convicted, they're in the clink, they have a right to reform themselves, study the Bible, take the sacraments, lift weights, that's one thing we know they do do a lot in prison, and lead an otherwise good life, the kind that Dostoevsky talks about in all his four great novels, without being pestered, raped, and murdered by the other murderers who are not taking their chance to make right with the Lord. And guess what? 
They can't do this. Their dignity is impaired by the fact that none of these murderers are being put to death. If they're all being put to death, then the good ones that want to get right with the Lord, like the good thief, they can, okay, you're going to be put to death at the end of the year. Get right with the Lord, take the sacraments, do a uh, penance, go to confession, and you can ultimately go to heaven. But instead, their right to life is impeded, even if they're trying to do this. Let's say there, there is no death penalty. They're a murderer. A is a murderer. He's in there trying to turn his life around. B ends up killing him, another murderer, who's not trying to turn his life around. He kills him and interferes with his right to life. Both of them should have had the death penalty. Francis and John Paul II did not care about the dignity of the guilty accused as they rot away in prison for life. And I know so because they only measure the validity or invalidity of the death penalty based upon whether or not people outside of the slammer will be killed by these people. Okay, maybe we won't. And this isn't the main measure of the death penalty anyway, which is the, the principles that I mentioned three minutes ago. The principle is what makes the death penalty good and what makes anti-death penalty people wrong. But I'm just saying on the secondary justification for the death penalty, saving innocent life, Francis and John Paul II don't even mean what they say because they don't care about the quasi-innocent life of the reformed prisoners might have killed someone in their past life, but they're trying to be good who can be harassed, raped, and murdered. And this happens in very high numbers in American prisons. But they, nevertheless, they drone on and on about the high-tech nature of first-world country prisons and how they'll never escape. For one thing, they're paroled all the time. Another invalidity. They're just hole after hole after hole in this argument. If they're not paroled, they have escaped in high-tech American prisons before from high-tech American prisons. But the most common thing is they kill other prisoners or at least rape them. JP2 and Francis either didn't think about this or don't care about the dignity of the guilty accused. As evidence of the last point that the EWTN article made, every day in this country, more innocent unborn babies die than all the criminals executed in this country's entire history. Every day in this country, innocent babies are killed in one average day, in number, a greater number, than all of the sum total of criminals executed in this country's history. And remember, it's not like we're comparing apples to apples anyway, because even if the number of criminals that have been executed in this country were a thousand times greater than the number of babies being aborted, it's just to execute a criminal. I've shown you how in this show. It's unjust to kill even one baby. One baby being aborted, even if they're just one in this country's history, that's a, an, an outrage. A million guilty accused criminals who've been through due process, who've been put to death, would not be a moral slight at all. It would be a moral good. A third of those million, judging by the statistics I've seen, would wind up in purgatory or heaven. If those same million were not put to death, but just thrown in prison for life, next to zero 
Zero to five percent of them, according to the numbers I've seen, would wind up being able to go to heaven because they wouldn't make any kind of confessional act. Abortion and the death penalty cannot be compared. So we've seen the seamless garment as death for pro-life activism, the title of this argument. I would just say what's been death or near petrifying like a coma for the pro-life movement has been allowing Catholic feminists in. Feminism is in its roots committed to getting women out of the home. And in its roots, I'm quoting from Simone de Beauvoir, committed to getting them out of the home by contracepting and aborting babies. Human beings have sex with each other. That's just what they do. Right? Pretty ones, handsome ones, fat ones, thin ones, ugly ones, mediocre looking ones. That's what human beings do. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Human life is about sex in its generative act. And human life, in terms of the motivating act for males day to day, it's the greatest motivator of male behavior, bar none. No second close, second place motivator for male behavior. Human beings have sex with each other. And because they do so, feminism, in order to attain its main goal, get women out of the home, barefoot and pregnant, this retorted phrase that we all have been trained to use. They must contracept, and when contraception fails, as it does like a tenth of the time, abort. All the feminists say this. And yet, the other show topic I was thinking of doing today is everyone you know is a feminist, even though they don't know it. Aside from people that have read Case for Patriarchy or Ask Your Husband. Everyone's a feminist, and that, that show is going to be coming up soon. My friend Dr. Michael Robillard said, every girl I knew in the 90s was, even the Christian ones, even the practicing Christian ones, was a first wave feminist. The ones that owned it more, and those ones tended to be more tomboys. The ones that were better looking, that were more effeminate, might have been second or third wave feminists. They owned it, but they were feminists. Everyone's either first, second, or third wave feminist that you know, unless they've read my book or Steph's. Catholics too, okay? And feminism's main sacrament is abortion. Everyone in the country, everyone in our religion, trads, Novus Ordo, old Catholics, SSPX, SSPV, Almost everyone is a feminist because there are secret tentacles in feminism that you don't even know about. You talk to trads, they, what do they start pissing and moaning about? Oh, we just don't make enough money. It's always about money with trads. And they say, oh, so my wife has to work. Well, then you're a feminist. You're a feminist. That's how it works. And as soon as you accept that component of feminism... Feminism's in the door. Even if you're like, well, my wife works, but we're very anti-abortion. Yeah, there's a lot of those people. But the point is you're very extreme. You're an extreme minority. Every human being in America in the 90s was some form or another of feminists. Feminists are the ones, feminism equals abortionism. Kill babies. Feminists hate babies. Babies are the enemies of liberated women. Liberated women hate babies. So, this is why 
the seamless garment rages on. This is why it's so important to Francis. Fe- Francis is a huge feminist. John Paul II was a low-key feminist, even though he, he did veritably dislike abortion. Fran- now, Francis is worse, obviously. We know Francis is way worse than John Paul II was. Francis didn't, doesn't even want folks to be able to be punished for life. So JP2's entanglements with bad ideas, ecumenism, Christian feminism, there's, there's lots of these issues. But ecumenism and Christian feminism are some of the worst. And then his, his death penalty, uh, skullduggery. It stemmed from a kind of softness or weakness early in his life, where he came from in war-torn Poland. It, it's bad, and it put us on the really, really wrong track or kept us on the really wrong track because he had like the second longest pontificate in the church's history or third. So he was really committed to the pontificate. He was really holy in other ways. He loved Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. But without looking like a bad guy, the way for everyone knows Francis is a bad guy, right? If, if the Pope's planners is what they're trying not to say, trying to cover up. Everyone knows Francis is a bad guy. But JP2's entanglements with feminism, ecumenism, death penalty, there's some more, but those are the main ones. They ended there. He just had a soft spot and he really screwed up. And, and uh, you know, he has a, a checkerboard history with regard to the new mass versus the old mass. Was good in some ways, really bad in others. But, you know, that's not so much what we're talking about. Francis, on the other hand, does not stop with those. Francis wants all punishment eradicated. He said life sentences, even for murder, are evil. Death penalty is evil. Life sentences are evil. So someone must be able to murder someone and, according to Pope Francis, walk the streets again. Pope Francis has said not in reference to God, but in reference to human beings that the logic of the gospel is that they can't be punished. Well, let me start this over. Francis has a throwaway statement in Amoris Laetitia chapter 8 that no one caught until a few years back. Very few spoke about it when it came out in 2016. The logic of the gospel is that no one can be punished forever. Now, the Pope's planners will say that Francis means well, th- this, this applies to human beings. Uh, no human being has ever punished or been punished forever by another human being. You can't do it. We don't live forever. So soteriologically, Fran- Pope Francis believes that God can't punish human beings forever by his usual means, which is how. The Pope's planners deny this fervidly, but... I just showed you the uh, uh, grammatical and syntagmatic reason why he could not have been referring to human beings punishing other human beings forever. We don't live forever. We don't have mechanisms for punishing someone forever. If you put someone to death, you're not punishing them forever. If you send someone to prison for life, you're not punishing them forever. Now, we do know Francis opposes both. But Francis takes the model of no human death penalty, no human life imprisonment, and he applies it to God. Francis thinks that he can tell God, it's unjust for you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
to punish whoever you want to punish in hell forever. So this is a bigger piece of the puzzle. The death penalty is not for Francis what it was for JP2. JP2 was wrong on it. He started us down the really, really evil path of denying the death penalty in, 19, in his 1997 revision of the death penalty. I was going to do a dissertation on this. I did a paper on it. He has some technical formal errors in the 97 catechism. There's errors in the catechism. Announce that. The 97 catechism revision by JP2 on the death penalty has formal errors in it. But he was not trying to say God can't punish forever with hell. How can, how can that be? How can a catechism have errors in it? Catechisms can have errors in them. Robertson Genesis pointed some out. The catechetical document is just the church's best teaching instrument where it sums everything up at once. It's really handy, but it's hard to sum up everything and get everything perfectly right. We've had catechisms with errors before. You just correct them and pull them out of there. The 97 Catechism has the error. Now, Francis is never going to allow a correction because he took the 97 errant catechetical update by JP2 and he carried it further in 2018, didn't he? He took it a step further. And he says the death penalty is now inadmissible. But I'm trying to draw a line of distinction between Francis and JP2 in their implementation. Francis was... JP2 was not a seamless garment advocate. Francis was, JP2 was not. JP2 got confused. He's not a great thinker. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He said things back to back that contradicted one another. He contradicted universalism sometimes. Then he wrote, he christened anyway, the Fatima prayer and, and lots of, cite the Fatima Fatima prayer as a kind of universalism. He kissed the Quran. Did he said Jesus, Mary, Joseph are the only way to heaven, the Holy Family. Tons of contradiction in JP2. His thinking is more, if you if you pardon the expression, Dostoevsky calls someone like John Paul II from a hundred years before a, a woman's prophet. JP2 wears his heart on his sleeves. Women are always great lovers of John Paul II. And now he's a saint. I'm not saying he's not. A saint's a saint. You're never going to do wrong by loving a saint. But he, it's not like Pius V. It's not like Pius the, not blessed Pius IX. Not like Pius X, right? Who says that modernists should be, should be beaten. <laughs> That's a man's prophet. Dostoevsky uses this term and he says, you know, these, there's women's prophets and men's prophets. JP2 is a woman's prophet. Okay? And that's why there's lots to take out of there that's good, but there's lots of error, lots of contradiction. Same thing in the Catholic spaces today. There's lots of good stuff happening on the Catholic internet, but a lot, I'd say the vast majority of the speaker, and I'm not talking about the sex of the speaker, most of the Catholic women's prophets are most of the Catholic talking heads today. Not all, but most. And most of them are male. But they're called a woman's prophet. It would be like if men loved Coke, women loved Pepsi, you'd say, well, Pepsi's the woman's choice. And Pepsi might be made and bottled by all men, but it's still a 
woman's beverage in my little thought experiment. And, and the seamless garment is a particularly noxious version of a thought model that tends to appeal to those who like to listen to the women's prophets. Now, I, I will say this much in closing. Luckily, most people know when the title is used, the seamless garment. Oh, that was Joseph Cardinal Bernadin. He's a Satanist, homo predator. He's bad. He loved abortion. He attended abortion group fundraisers. He's really wicked. He's the bad guy in windswept house, whatever. Good. But a lot of folks don't understand all the many applications of the seamless garment when when the moniker is not already pre-attached to it. A lot of folks are like, a lot of folks fall for the rope-a-dope death penalty trick. Most of you that talk about it find yourself on the ropes with death penalty advocates like James Martin. I'll, I'll read his tweet in closing. Like James Martin, who say, well, 97 Catechism revision by JP2 implies that if you want to make a case for the death penalty anymore, you have to make a case for modern prison systems still failing to defend innocent human life. you got to make a jailbreak case that this is more ubiquitous than folks think. And you start going for it instead of going, nope, nonsense. The death penalty is just and justified even if all prisons were hermetically sealed and apodictically guaranteed not to have another escapee for the rest of human history. That's how you combat it. Defending innocent life is not the way that the death penalty is justified. If you try to justify it that way like JP2 did in the 97 Catechism Revision, you commit the moral theological fallacy and heresy of consequentialism. The only way that one is allowed to justify the killing of another human being is in the is in the exigent circumstances when a clear and present danger is being implemented you kill them and you say this is double effect that's not the case for someone that is in prison for life in in a third world country with weak prison walls where they might escape those conditions do not furnish the necessary conditions for principle of double effect to be recurred to. JP2 made a formal fallacy. And when you argue for the death penalty, never, ever, ever, ever find yourself on the ropes where you're talking about why, given modern innovations in the prison systems and modern technology, people can still escape from prison. You're going down the wrong path if you find yourself defending the death penalty that way. Death penalty is justified in principle. The principle of retributivism, you take a life, we take yours, from the perspective of the victim and from the perspective of the guilty, it's inherently justified because it is the best way, because of what we just said, retributivism, it's the best way of getting someone to face what they've done. They know they must face the very act that they committed, done to them, that act carries with it implicitly a timeline and you have infinitely more 
conversions and saved souls among those who commit it. Now, Francis doesn't want souls. I don't think he wants, I can't, I'm not his judge. I don't think he wants more people getting to heaven. I think he wants less. And that's why he hates the death penalty. Okay. Final expression of the seamless garment. Listen to this. It'll, it'll make you hate it. It'll make you hate it so much. Um, this is James Martin. SJ. SJ. Being pro-life means defending the lives of the unborn, SJ. And the sick and the poor and the homeless and the aged and the mentally challenged and the inmate and the refugee and the person or people you hate. Being pro-life means reverencing all human life because it's all from God. Nine days for life, he tweeted. This is, this is an older tweet from 2018. Wrong. You're wrong. Being pro-life means defending the lives of the unborn and the elderly who would be euthanized, elder, sick elderly in particular. Because it involves the taking of life. You moron. <laughs> You're a moron. It, it, I mean, he said the sick, so we'll take that. The poor? No. It means you're pro-poor. It doesn't mean you're pro-life. If you love working with the poor, as you should, particularly in third world countries, it's a, a bit of a different situation in first world countries, but if you love working with the poor, good for you. That'll help get you to heaven. But you're pro-poor. You're not pro-life. If you love working with the homeless, you're pro-homeless. Good for you, Jesus says to, particularly in third world countries. It's a different situation here with the drug epidemics. Homeless or druggies. It's tricky here. Hard, hard to tell someone with a family to go work with the homeless. Those people end up getting attacked and sometimes killed. But you should, particularly in third world countries, work with the homeless. You're pro-homeless. You're not pro-life if you do that. The aged. Well, if you're working with the aged who are not under the risk of being killed by euthanasia, then you're not pro-life. If so, then you are. But if they're just regular aged who are lonely at nursing homes, who love to see our kids, we need to bring our kids back into a nursing home. They love it when we do that. Then you're pro-aged. The mentally challenged, you love working with them, you're pro-mentally challenged. You're not pro-life. You love working with the inmate, then you're pro-inmate. Am I making my point? You're only pro-life by defending the lives of someone who has their life threatened. It's like people that say, I'm a survivor of identity fraud. <laughs> what? You're only a survivor in a situation where your life might have been taken. You can't call yourself a survivor of jaywalking, <laughs> right? People do that now. I heard the expression, a survivor of sexual harassment the other day in an article. At work, in like a high-powered law firm. Someone called you toots and you said you survived it. No, that was not an attempt on your life. You're not a survivor. The refugee. You're pro-refugee if you work with them. You're not pro-life. Loving the people you hate. You're pro-people you hate, as all Christians should be. These are all good ideas, more or less intense degree. But you're not pro-life just for loving people you hate. You're pro-people you hate. All life is from human God. This means at the very beginning, abortion. The very end, euthanasia. Two life issues. I've given you some handy tools for the dialogue. Go have it. Go have it. Go have this dialogue. And in particular, that main fallacy, the seamless garment folks will use 
you can't be pro-life unless you are anti-death penalty. No, go destroy this argument. When you get into this debate, the water cooler, the lunchroom, the, the narthex of your church, after church, the parish barbecue, your company barbecue, whatever, go destroy this argument. No, I'm pro-life. That means that I am for the, it implies that I am for the death penalty, but they're two garments. If you make the other case, then it means you like sequined garments, I'm guessing, like Bernadine. Was Bernadine an SJ? Can't remember. I don't think he was. He was something good. I think he was some good religious order. I can't remember what. Write it in the comments if you remember what uh, uh, Joseph Cardinal Bernadine was, what religious order. Maybe he was just a parish priest. God bless you all. Please give money to Ryan Grant. If you want to support this show, please give to us on Locals. Please give to us on Subscribestar. God bless you all. Like this video, subscribe, click the notification box. Give to the support Sarah Grant and Family Give, Send, Go. Please do that. Please, please do that. Subscribe to us on Rumble. Also, get out of your blue state and get to a red state today. Do so. Realestateforlife.org. You need to get out of your blue state, get to a red state. Deus Volt, folks. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb.